Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia, and you're listening to the Singapore Noodles Podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today I have on the show Gan Chin Lin, who is the person behind the Instagram account Tumblin, Bumblin, Crumblin Cookie. And in this following conversation, we chat about Asia's history with vegetarianism, privilege and our food choices, as well as food education in Singapore. I really enjoyed this chat and I hope that you would feel the same about it. So I know that you're vegan. So what really started you on this journey of wanting to reduce your impact on the environment and eating less meat? I do think vegan can be a very tricky term. I would say that I consume a plant-based diet and of course stay away from animal products. But um, I think like many other people, I first looked at it as um, through the lens of food or like a diet choice primarily. And I think that came, that consciousness came through. I was thinking about this the other day, but um, in primary school, I was in dance CCA. And sometimes when we had like competitions or performances, then people would have like dietary restrictions and they would be like vegetarian and something like that. And I do remember like a few occasions I wouldn't mind, like there would be a misorder or miscommunication and I would be like, okay, let me try the vegetarian meal. And they would have those kind of um, mock meats, those made of gluten and whatever to imitate char siu. And I would be like, oh, cool. This is what they eat instead. <laughs> and yeah, that's where I first kind of got to understand what it was like through a packed styrofoam box but I think that expanded once I got really into reading food vlogs and like really passionate about cooking and recipes and I would see you know alternative baking and be like what's this ingredient what's that ingredient and I guess it just expanded from there and I decided to just do it myself (laughs) yeah so when was this when did it start yeah I would say that I um, gave up um, all animal products for majority of the times uh, by secondary three around there. Yeah, so it was from around there that I guess you could say that I made a shift and from the kind of um, diet shift came a lifestyle shift as well. Once you educate yourself more and it's like, okay, you know, once you make a stand on a certain area, you have to ensure that it's reflected throughout. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And was it difficult for you to make that shift? Mm, it is true that there is that kind of notion that Asian parents, or at least a certain generation, can be a little sticklier around the notions of foregoing meat. It becomes a very um, clutching of pearls, like, oh, you're gonna, you're gonna uh, shrivel from <laughs> protein deficiencies, calcium deficiencies. And I would say that, of course, my parents did have that instinctual knee-jerk reaction, I guess, predominantly my mom, because she was in charge of the cooking. But yeah, looking back, it must have been more difficult in the moment, but I would say that she was, she did get, um, to a more compromising stance in the end and gradually bought more tofu. And I guess I also couldn't be too stringent about it. Like if she made a dish with like pork and like vegetables and picked up the vegetables for me, I wasn't going to refuse it. And I don't think that I will refuse it even today, like in big like family gatherings or anything. If someone picks out vegetables or like non-animal products things from something that may have say, 
anchovies in the broth. I'm not going to refuse it, especially if it doesn't have a lot of animal gristle on it or if they clean it for me. You know, that's such a kind and genuine gesture and cooking is always such a labor of love and care. And yeah, I I don't see anything wrong in that. I feel like nowadays people get very hung up on identity markers or big umbrellas to categorize people. And I think that can really enforce a certain kind of group thing that <laughs> runs very wild on the internet nowadays and can only lead to like further tribalism and like cut society into very immovable stances. And I would, I do hope um, that we can come to a discussion, like we being a society in general, where we can think more fluidly about things while still holding to our personal principles, of course, but just not be so immovable about having to see everything in narrow typecast categories. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree with what you're saying, because I feel that every time you declare like, oh, you know, I'm going to uh, adopt a, a new plant-based diet everyone is trying to pick at bones or like pick out inconsistencies in your lifestyle or your diet right yeah precisely and I do think that you know it is a part of human nature to be quite curious about what people eat like you know even when you're in the supermarket and checking out or at least for me and my personal experience there's always going to be some auntie or uncle just like staring at my basket I'm like just let me check out my brinjals in peace <laughs> but um, I think that, um, you know, it's quite natural again, like to judge people by what we put in our baskets. And there is a lot of this kind of idea that you can tell a lot about a person through the food that they buy and they eat. And like, um, and this kind of literalism really becomes a very profitable chunk of our contemporary food culture, right? You see all this kind of rhetoric about junk food makes for at like dirty diets and then by proxy dirty people or like drunk people and when people see a dish that is like unfamiliar then they think that the people who eat it by proxy also become you know strange and different from the way they are so and obviously these are very wrong categorizations to make right so i think it's really worth like questioning the assumptions about what we view as like normal or like plain or good or right or wrong in food. And, you know, yeah, often these judgments, I do think, you know, um, say much more about the person airing them than they do about the person who is actually doing the eating. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask what exactly was in your basket that the aunties or uncles felt were like a bit strange? Uh, it wasn't really a particular item but they would just have that kind of like you can see the mental the mental scanning going through their brain they're like what's she buying like why is there like two packets of taoqua is she buying for herself or like a family you know yeah i i think it's very interesting how you know these um behaviors or these ingredients that used to be so common in our diets right i mean before this this um abundance of meat started coming into play i mean Chinese societies used to eat really simply, right? Or Asian, yeah. Asian communities in general. Yeah, um, you're so right because uh, you see all this kind of instinctual like knee-jerk alarm when you see the term veganism, but vegetarianism and veganism is actually so inherent to Asian cultures, like temple food in Buddhism, and which is um, satal yum shik in Korea and 
I'm not sure if you watched um, Chef's Table, but there was Jong Kwan, the episode with Jong Kwan, the Buddhist nun who became famous. And I think she even released a cookbook recently. Yeah, and the equivalent of, of that is um, Shojin Ryori in Japan, which is like so um, ornate. And you have all those elaborate kind of setups. And in, even in Singapore, we have Chai Chai. I think it's called Chai Chai. Yeah, and the Singapore Buddhist Lodge provides free meals, I think, but I'm not sure about their COVID protocol. Yeah, and even the whole concept of um, imitation meat, like the packets of fake char syrup or whatever was, if I'm not wrong, they were actually made as like a substitute for the monks' um, transitional period from non-vegetarian to vegetarianism and also for their family or friends who would visit them at the lodge. So yeah, our culture has always made space and had room for these kind of ideas. It's only because... Um, of what has been normalized and how society has progressed and aids and of course industrialization and all that, that now these things seem like foreign or very niche or radical in some senses. And people can be afraid of that, I guess, yeah. Yeah, and do you think there is an element of class that comes into adopting a vegan diet or vegetarian diet? Um, I think that that is, um, certainly one of the assumptions a lot of people have, right? And like the idea that you have to purchase all these ingredients or like substitute products. Um, but I don't think it's an issue of privilege at all to the extent that, I mean, of course it is true that to choose what you eat is definitely a privilege. Like not everyone can exercise that autonomy, especially if they are, say, relying on coupons or like food stamps for her. Yeah. But, you know, there's also during this pandemic, you see the news about spikes in the virus and many like workers at meat processing plants just getting infected over and over and infecting everyone else. And you can clearly see where the bottom line is or isn't in this industry. And of course, these workers are minimum wage workers, you know. They also not the top tier of society, if we can hold the truth that, you know, not everyone can uh, make the decision to choose what is on their plate, you must also know that these are the same people that are being affected by the meat industry and the dairy industry and all these kind of like structures that uh, I think are at the core of why people choose veganism in the first place to kind of protest against or like not to subscribe to anymore. Yeah. yeah, and um, I, I understand that you study in the UK and you come back to Singapore once in a while for visits, right? Is that right? Uh, yeah, I'm currently finishing my undergraduate in English and related literatures. So I wouldn't say that I kind of live in the UK. I just went there for my studies and yeah, I've been stranded here for a while. But <laughs> I still have to graduate, so fingers crossed it will be okay. Yeah. yeah. So in that sense, you know, when you were living in the UK, did you feel like um, the culture around veganism or the conversations around it was very different from uh, what you experienced in Singapore? I don't think that they are more open to the idea, especially in the ways veganism has become very hip to marketing in um, the food department and food scene there in particular. They are quite um, more well-versed in alternative products and what these mean. Whereas I think in Singapore, some people don't really understand 
you know, the clear delineations, if there are any, I guess the state diet-wise ones for like veganism and vegetarianism and all that. But in the UK, there's quite a flourishing plant-based market based on all these kind of like milk substitutes, dairy substitutes, um, cheese, uh, even meat substitutes. And yeah, it was definitely quite eye-opening, I think, when I first stepped into the various supermarkets. And you know, they kind of have a tier that's the same way we have, you know, Chengxiang Giant and then at NTUC, NTUC, Fair Price Finance, and then Code Storage. They also have like Sainsbury's, as Asda, um, Tesco's, all these. But even at the those that weren't, say, the swankiest like Waitrose, <laughs> you could still find one or two like vegan products in the sense that it would be like, oh, a pot of coconut yogurt. And mm-hmm. yeah, I do think that that part was quite encouraging to see even though it was very like eye-opening, I guess, when you first go there and you're like, wow, I don't know about you, but I do like to browse the supermarkets when I'm going to a foreign country. It's really fun. Yeah, me too. I love it because you really get a sense of what people are eating, right, in in a different country. Um, But why do you think that is? I mean, do you feel that it's because people overseas or in the UK are more environmentally conscious? That's why they are more... Um, there is more, like a greater range of vegan products or meat substitutes compared to Singapore? It's not so much about a scale of progressiveness as I think who is driving driving the cultural conversations about food in the first place. You see, in the UK, there are lots of these like contemporary products and like vegan desserts, even in the supermarkets, like packaged and like vegan ready meals and all that. And it is very aligned to what people are eating in the now you know there's there's a little bit for everyone like the kind of medita- mediterranean fashion that is quite popular nowadays in many recipes and um a whole range of like things that you can treat differently but i think in non-western countries people still practice veganism through food in very accessible and natural ways but it just doesn't reflect in the market because we are very used I mean what we see in the media and all that is very driven by um, a western hegemony so we may not see what is already around us if that makes sense because we are always seeing them as like on the forefront of innovating and what is what dominates like the global um, news yeah so, I mean, even in Singapore, I guess that we, like like what I kind of mentioned previously, we do have all these kind of vegetarian and meat substitutes all along. They're just sitting in a, quietly in a shelf there. But in the UK, once you repackage it in something more trendy and like bitsy, it becomes new and exciting and then people will take fresher notice of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I love the, that point that you just made. And I realized that that was reflected in a lot of things that you cook on your Instagram, right? I realized that you make a lot of um, vegan chashu and you do a lot of techniques that my mom taught me, like um, frozen tofu, right? Like you would. Oh, taught you that? Yeah, and I was like, how did you know about this? I didn't <laughs> know about this. Yeah, so I mean, when I was looking at your Instagram, I realized that you you actually went back and, and you know, drew upon the wisdom that was naturally inherent in Asia. So, I mean, how did you know where to look or, you know, how did you gain that kind of inspiration? 
You know, it's really funny, isn't it, that all these methods are actually things that people have been practicing for a long while. Um, I guess for me, I had to kind of like forge my own path. When it comes to substituting meat products, a lot of people can only imagine kind of like the didactism of you have to swap one protein for another protein. But I think that it really expands your horizons when you think about taste and experience and how a substance reacts to heat over duration of time. And yeah, say for example, eggplant, it has a kind of like slightly gelatinous set to it, which can be a bit like eel or like codfish, those kind of strains of fish that have a certain gel-like bite mm. to it. So I've seen people make unagi with it or even um, treat it like milk fish. I have a friend um, uh, called The Foodie Takes Flights. That's, I'm not called that, that's her handle. Um, she's called Jika. She's from the Philippines and she uses eggplant instead of milk fish to make bangus, which is a Filipino dish. And um, a lot of these tricks that I, I learned from YouTube, where there's this really sweet um, vegan lady called Irene, and her all her videos are in Chinese with English subtitles, but she does so many methods like filleting, filleting, sorry, oyster mushrooms by holding the knife at an angle and slowly turning the oyster. And then once, oyster mushrooms, sorry, but once you pound it with a rolling pin, it turns out that the mushroom splinters in the same way that can easily easily mimic the mouthfeel of say chicken, chicken meat or like chicken muscle. Yeah, and once you layer those with cornstarch, you can get a very satisfying bite or even things like Inoki mushroom. So you cut off the slightly nasty part and you mix it with tofu paste and then you wrap it in bean cut sheets and you fry it and then you have a fish that kind of flakes. Yeah, I saw somebody on Instagram um, called Jackie. She's also a Singaporean. Called, um, her handle is B for veganista. But she used this method to make um, sambal stingray with chinchalot. Yeah, which was really cool to see. Yeah, and I've even seen people use a baguette crust and a set tapioca kueh layer and then deep fry the whole thing to make sancheng roll, which is um, <laughs> triple layer roasted pork, yeah, the Chinese way. Yeah, so it's really interesting to see the diverse ways people try to reimagine re certain memories of food. I would say that they are replicating meat wholesale. I think there's a certain extent to which these recipe makers and cooks know that this is not a real thing, but it's just so clever and so creative the way different ingredients and what we already have in our fridge can be recombined. And then you get closer to a memory. And I think that that part is, so, is what counts because that is in itself as nourishing as what you eat, you know, yeah. Oh, oh my gosh, someone needs to print that and slap that on a book because it was <laughs> oh, I got goosebumps. It was amazing. I really can sense that excitement that you feel when it comes to seeing the way people, you know, are, are using their culinary resource resourcefulness, right, and ingenuity to transform vegetables. And I think that was what really drew me to, to vegetarian kind of I mean, historic vegetarian cooking techniques. Um, because to me, I'm not keen, I'm not so keen on like a, a sausage made out of, you know, lab-grown meat or, or 
you know, impossible, what do they call it? Impossible burger? Impossible. Yeah, impossible meat. Beyond burgers. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, when I learned about how, you know, people are, I mean, in the temple, I mean, they call it the temple cuisine, right? The monks were actually transforming gluten into wonderful things. And, you know, it's just amazing how a bunch of flour and some water can transform into this chewy thing. Um, and and the way they would uh, braid it together to form like those meat like strands, right? When it comes to char siu, it, it just blew my mind, and I was so fascinated. So, do you feel that you became a more creative cook since you became vegan? Yeah, I would say I definitely have. You have to, as much as I don't like to think about um, veganism in terms of cooking as limitations. There is a certain, you do have to work around certain things. Like I do a lot of vegan baking, so you have to replicate the different purposes of egg in many different forms. And for that, you have to use entirely different ingredients in entirely different ways. And that can be a lot to grapple with. But once you really embrace that, you have to learn. It can be so fun. It can be so rewarding as well. Yeah, there's a lot of joy to be taken in it. And I think that's the part a lot of people don't see it. They just see that, oh, we have to no longer eat meat. You cannot consume egg anymore. And of course, once you focus on that, it can seem very limiting. But once you focus on what you do have, it's like, wow, there's a whole new world of possibility that can be opened up. Yeah, Yeah, actually, you know, just speaking about desserts or sweets in Asia, like a lot of them are actually vegan, right? Yeah. Yeah, and uh, I, I think what is fascinating is, you know, discovering the intersection between our culture and our heritage and um, new ways of eating, like veganism or plant-based diets. Um, and what I've realized is that sometimes the definitions of what is vegetarian or what is vegan differs from country to country or religion to religion, right? So uh, recently, I was reading up about mitai, which is uh, traditional Indian sweets. And you know, because the Indians, they revere the cow, uh, they see the milk as sacred. And so a lot of the sweets, they don't have eggs, but you know, it's made from milk. Um, and so I was just wondering, is it ever possible for an Indian person to go vegan? Because you know, it's such a big part of that culture, this reverence for the cow and its milk. Yeah, that's the thing. There was actually... Um an article um, published yesterday uh, for Slate. I think, the, if I'm not wrong, the author was called Iman Ismail, but it was basically about impossible pork and him being a Muslim and how, you know, whether it was halal. And I kind of really, and I think that the article didn't really come to a definite conclusion as is expected, because it would differ to different people. And but I did enjoy like reading the different perspectives. And in particular, um, he actually asked his mom, and his mom um, gave a very kind of like spiritual approach. Like God made everything permissible except pig, so it's not like we don't have many options. What you know, she gave that kind of yeah. answer again, which is to um, why do I need to consume? something that is pop-like in an image when I really have so many things. But I do think that when it comes to religion, especially, it's not for anyone to dictate what anyone's anyone else's kind of like spiritual and ethical 
boundaries are and that has to be something that that individual person grapples with and again it's a matter of individual conscience you know like at the end all we can do is kind of be open to um different kind of perspectives but understand our own principles in the first place Mm -hmm. yeah but i do think there is a definitely a definite special relationship with the animal and different um, ethnicities and how we understand it like even for us like being Chinese I there's a lot of superstition and whatnot around different dishes and and I do remember like um, even the ban- banquet style steamed fish there's always this thing about oh if you eat the eye it brings you luck that kind of thing so it's very the way we consume animals definitely is very entrenched into our daily lives and our upbringing yeah, so that definitely is something that people have to navigate on their own terms with their understanding of the contemporary world and how that is changing around us, I guess. Yeah, yeah exactly. And, you know, I mean, as a Chinese, right, um, the more I learn about my own culture, the more I realise that pigs or pork is so intrinsic to our culture. You know, the word family, like jia, right, it's actually um, a roof and a pig under it. Because yeah, like, yeah. like pigs used to be living in, in the, the house with the family, right? And, you know, um, it was a do- domesticated animal. And so I was just thinking, you know, would I lose my culture? Would I lose my heritage if I were to change the way that I eat? And I came across one Instagram story that you you were writing about um, about this issue and you wrote something about something along the lines that um, you you believe that veganism and our heritage can coexist. So what do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I guess it kind of was, I can't remember exactly the context, but if you think about it now, I guess um, for one, like we were mentioning earlier, veganism and vegetarian is actually a very natural part to our cultures, but I think that when we think about culture and heritage, we always have to, we always try to refocus and think about what is authentic, you know, what is traditional. And um, I distinctly recall this, this um, writer, Coral Lee, and she said something like, authentic cuisine is like a relative descriptor because like geopolitical borders shift and those borders too are very like membranous. So similarly, authenticity is something very porous and that changes over time and um i know you kind of talked to celestial peach who is jenny jenny Lau. yeah she does a lot of good work and she writes amazing essays about authenticity and tradition and food and i think something she wrote in her April authenticity essay really resonated with me which is that it's more about the intention you know when it comes down to it and i don't i don't even think that our grandmas or like their great grandmas before them were cooking like perfect renditions, like recreations of what their grandmas cooked for them. It's only that also changes over time. And that's what is exciting about food in a sense, you know, that it changes over time and people change with them and taste change. And yeah, I think that it's just part of food and eating that it is so fluid and it's, hard to navigate because you want to hold on to what is true but I think it is the 
act of discovery and like the journey of trying to find it that you know can be fun yeah <laughs> so we can just try but I do understand what you mean about pork because um my papa my grandma is like haka and I recall like a few weeks back I was falling in a, into a wormhole because I remember she used to make these like small black cake cakes I don't know what the term is I think they're black bean cakes but in haka is teotekang yeah and it basically a very compact way like substance with black beans and it focuses on ground pork inside along with mandarin peel and i was thinking about it because i recalled how my mom would like be actually secretly super happy whenever my papa would bring it over for her even though they kind of like talk in a very like bickering way that is typical of many chinese families you understand right yeah so i was trying to think about what it would mean for me to hold on to this because even when I tried searching for a recipe, it was so difficult to find on the internet. There are so little resources and the idea of it just like disappearing is so, yeah, it makes me really panic on the inside. I can't let this go away. Yeah. And I don't have any answers to that still. I've found a few recipes and it's so interesting to read about the technique, but it focuses on so much pork and like even though I've, I'm used to veganizing recipes, for me it was really like, what do I replace this with? I can't like serve people mashed up tofu with black bean, right? It's not really the same. Yeah, so it is a journey, uh, but I do think that we are, we will be richer for going through that process of like examination and exploration. Yeah, and it's kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. It's like uh, reconciling different parts of your identity, right? Like your, yeah. your identity of being Hakka with your identity as someone who wants to do better for the environment and eat health, healthily and things like that. Um, so in that sense, when you approach cooking vegetables in your own kitchen, how do you make them taste delicious? Because, you know, vegetables, to be honest, you know, a vegetable can never match up to meat in terms of texture, in terms of the umami. Vegetables have so much water. So how do you make how do you make them taste good? Honestly, I feel like in this case, I have a bit of privilege because I love vegetables. <laughs> yeah, it comes really naturally to me. Um, but I do think that um, it is quite important to enjoy what you're eating because I think the enjoyment we get from our food is very intimately connected to the nutritional power of the food. Like the more you enjoy, of course, the more nutritional benefits you get to it. So I think that that can really help in guiding people to consume more vegetables, like take salad for an instance. I, I hate this hangout where people have the assumption that the vegetables inside have to be raw. Like, I feel like that hinders so many people from consuming what is termed salads. But if we think of, you know, salads as a simply a medley of different components. You can bring in the vegetables, you can even steam them lightly, whatever it takes for you to be able to consume them in a joyful way, you know. It can be different cooked elements. Yeah, I I do not like raw vegetables a lot. I mean, they're fine, but I hate arugula. So <laughs> there are so many, yeah, it's, it's kind of nasty. <laughs> but there are so many ways to work around it and to make it enjoyable. Like you can... I don't, for people who don't like it in like a strong vegetal form, you can hide it under the rich nuttiness of like something like pesto, or you could really infuse it with a lot of stock, 
by braising it into a stew. You can even make it into a cake, like that's carrot cakes or whatever. Who's to say you can't make broccoli cakes or whatever? Uh, yeah, I do think that it's just about transforming it into something that works for you. I don't think there's any shame in like saying, like hiding vegetables, say by like grinding them up into meatballs or whatever, or like people being scared that the nutritional benisons of the vegetables will be leached out the minute they touch like heat or something like that. Yeah, I think that's all, you know, to a certain extent, it's just theory. And I think that what a lot of studies in fact have backed up is that you have to enjoy the food in order to attain any nutritional benefits at all, yeah. So I would say just find the route that works for you. And there's no shame in having to like puree them or like hide the vegetable scents. There, you won't gain anything from forcing yourself to eat like bunches of greens, yeah. Yeah, and I think like um, if you were to force yourself to eat a diet that like that you don't like, I mean, it's not delicious to you, you would hardly stick to it, right? Um, yeah. so, I mean, that's that's how I was at the start of um, trying to cut down on my meat, you know, like I would eat a lot of, you know, what what's in the West, like salad, cream bowls, thinking that was very healthy. And then I, I just felt so unsatisfied and I crave for meat even more, you know, so it was like uh, it, it backfired. And so I realized that, you know, that's not how my palate works. And then I started looking at Burmese salads. I'm not sure if you've ever had Burmese salad before. I've tried um, tea salad, I think, once in my life, but I haven't, there are so many of them. Yeah, I haven't tried. Like, so there, there is tea leaf salad, there is what they call rainbow salad, and they basically have, like, so many different salads. And what I find really interesting is that they would uh, fry different things, like fry aromatics. So they would use garlic oil or shallot oil to dress the salad. Or they would deep fry dal, and it'll be like a crunchy element to the salad, and that would be like really nice. Yeah, so it's really an issue of like different strokes for different folks, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I think you know, in Singapore, the way that we view vegetables, it's almost like an afterthought. You know, like we just, you know, when I when I thought about the vegetable dishes that my family would cook when I was growing up, it was just like hastily fried. Kangkong or, 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 you know, some other leafy vegetables. And so, you know, when I thought about reducing my meat intake and eating more vegetables, it suddenly became very unappealing because it's always so plain. So mm. I really think that, you know, that is the mindset shift that has to happen before more Singaporeans are willing to accept eating vegetables. What do you think? I mean, what do you think is the main hindrance for a lot of Singaporeans to reduce the meat intake? Yeah, I, I'm not sure. I guess I am quite jaded after a long while. It can be very frustrating. Um, and I'm not even one of those like really evangelical vegans because I do believe that everyone has to find their own path and what's right for someone may not be right for another person. But I do think that we need to have a wider conversation about food and where it comes from. And who makes our food, you know, the many myriad chains of different hands passing us even one ingredient before it comes to it. I do believe with an informed understanding of that, we would be richer not only with like the knowledge of what options we have and are open to, but also how we feel when we 
consume what is on our plates. You know, I do like I do have a lot of peers who are like who understand that say McDonald's is a really terrible corporate fast food giant, but the minute they come up with like um What's the recent one? The Hainanese chicken rice burgers, or like, oh, let's let's get that, or like a BTS meal. That kind of stuff that is impossible to, at least for them in that moment, or like worth it at least to make that choice. Okay, I'm gonna get it. Yeah, I do think that a lot of it has to boil down to education, and I do think that this is as integral as say, civics education, which we make time for every single week in primary school. And yeah, I do think that Singapore in particular has a very weird way of educating children about food. Like on one hand, you have all these lessons about, oh, there's this like diet, not, not diet period, this healthy pyramid, and on the bottom is that you should eat less of this when it goes up. But it's also abstracted from what you eat in everyday life. And it's and there's always, and on the other hand, you have all these kind of like really terrible societal pressures where height and weight things are made to be this kind of like sensational thing. Every every term or whatever, it's like, oh, everyone's going to the room and everyone's going to get weight and it might be public or not. And everyone will poke fun at, the, at certain people. And even Tough Club, you think about how they were so militant as to withhold kids from recess just because they were above BMI, which is such an arbitrary number anyway, that on a study based on like white men. <laughs> yeah, we are using this to like punish students effectively instead of teaching them different ways to enjoy movement healthily or like what they can enjoy or like what they can perhaps reach for if their diet is concentrated in certain areas, you know. We have such a punitive and frustrating culture that is so entrenched in like fat phobia and like diet culture in general. And I think it's no wonder that a lot of people wrestle to get out of these very innate complications around food. And even now we are in such a middle, I mean, we are in the middle of such a like tidal wave of food-based medicine, right? Like health, healthy eating books or like the idea that certain foods can kill you and certain other foods can save you. But I think that these kind of, it's so easy to slip from that into other kinds of holistic healthcare and like mass paranoia around food and eating. And I think a lot of sensationalism around that is what drove a lot of people away from veganism in the first place. Like in the early 2010s, there was this like whole social media movement with really scarring. Um, yeah, it was cultish in a sense because people would, it was um, called high carb, low fat and people would just like stay away from fat. Like it was the play and it, yeah, and that's a lot of re oh, the reason why a lot of people jump to certain conclusions about veganism in the first place. And the underlying assumption of all these kind of like diets or nutritional models is that you can figure out the ingredients to happiness and like eat your way to some modicum of perfect health. But I think um like I think our bodies and brains are like much more endlessly complex and in a sense like more knowledgeable more knowledgeable than we can ever imagine like no matter what you do there's no certain way to guarantee health you know what I mean like yeah I mean without a doubt if you just do nothing but coca-cola and eat say like fried chicken every second day every second day it's not gonna lead you to your best self but neither would a fully sanitized diet of like 
you know, salad bowls with a, with a sense of puritanism. You know, we can't write a recipe for happiness. You know, yeah. it's impossible to predict. Yeah. And I think we have a very cookie cutter image of health, right? I mean, especially for girls. I mean, the, the image of a healthy female now is like someone who does yoga, sun salutation <laughs> in the morning, and then yeah. eat drinks, uh, green juice, kind of. I mean, that image is so tied to veganism, right? Is it not? Yeah, I think that's what happens when a lot of people, again, previously take their first impulse of veganism to be something quite and tense Western and very like isolated from not only the understanding of why people choose veganism in the first place, but every by the way that it is everywhere and so like part and parcel of our everyday life and culture. Yeah. Um, and to a certain extent, I guess it's understandable that people subscribe to certain um, notions because they are concerned for their health. But I think that we also have to remember that food is something that, it's not like a bad boyfriend, you get what I mean? It's not something you have to run away from or like be scared from. You have to find joy in it. And it's different from for everyone. And what's right for you may not be right from someone else. Our systems are so complex. And yeah, yeah and there's just a lot of terrible wellness talk out there and I just think that what's healthiest and what's most joyful is sitting down with people you love and having a really good meal or like having the success of cooking something really nice for yourself and enjoying it after having a really bad day that kind of restoration you feel on a physical and emotional level and I think that does more for you than any sort of prescribed set of like health pyramid or whatever can do yeah. or like someone drinking juices every morning yeah, I agree yeah. Can I ask, did you always have this positive relationship with food? Was it something that was very ingrained in you when you were growing up? Uh, I wouldn't say that my relationship with food has always been like super joyful. I think because I struggled a lot with depression. Um, I, I mean, I still do for more than half of my life. And that can affect not only my appetite for food, but for life in general. And um. But I definitely think that I've had my Instagram page for a while and I've been cooking and baking for myself. And being online for this long, with open inverted commas, um, has good and bad, bad, bad. And there's good and bad to it, is what I mean to say. But I think that I've learned a lot from seeing different movements come and go and how um, and what really inspires longevity and what is right. And I think, I mean, right for me. Yeah. And I think that reading from many different food writers that I really admire also helps because it does help to widen my and broaden my previously narrow concepts of what food is and what eating is in general. Yeah. So I think that what is really helpful in this case is like an under a willingness to a willingness to learn. Yeah. <laughs> because if I was really stringent on ideas of food, say like six years back, they would be really antiquated now and people learn more with time. So yeah, I'm glad that I have moved on with <laughs> Yeah. Beautiful. Oh my gosh. Um, 
I have one last question for you, and that is, what do you hope to see uh, shift in Singaporean food culture in the coming years? I hope that Singaporeans will be open to giving more to learning about food and giving more in terms of heart space, certainly, like just being willing to listen to so many people, like all the people on your podcast doing many amazing things for the Singaporean food scene and to understand how things get onto our plate and why they are on our plate, who makes our food, because we will be so much happier for that and the food will taste so much sweeter for that. But And I also think that, I don't know, I hope that people can also be critical about things like plant-based or things that come out in a very greenwashing manner because those aren't sustainable as well in the long run. And I know that it's a very tricky minefield to navigate, but I just hope that there can be a willingness to learn because there is a lot at stake now. I'm sure you also feel that as well. And especially with these few years with many different reports coming out and many things happening in general, it just comes to a point where you can either choose like absolute nihilism or try to do your best. And of course, everyone is imperfect. I also can't say that I'm like living a carbon-free, you know, like existence as a vapor. <laughs> but <laughs> I think what matters is the trying. And yeah, I think that can move us to a place where we enjoy our food more and learn about each other as well. Yeah. <laughs> so beautiful. I think you're such a sweet person. I'm so happy that you can meet. Like no, even I'm, it's just through Zoom, but you know it's really. I'm so happy to meet you. you. You're so like inspirational, and you've done so much for the food scene, and to just like collect so many voices and just have these conversations in the first place about food and appetites. To have this kind of like candid, honest conversation really brings together a lot of people. I think what matters is that you started in the first place. It's not that people don't want to talk about this, that someone has to ask the first question and you did. And it's so wonderful to see so many communities just like come together and be like, well, let's all make our own sambal this weekend, you know? Yeah, yeah it's so amazing what you're doing. Like, for well, me, thank you so much. <laughs> you. I love what you're doing. So continue doing it. I love seeing your, your bread, your shreddable bread. <laughs> <laughs> That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Gan Shin Lin of Tumbling Bumbling Crumbling Cookie. Food media in Singapore tends to focus on the best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you would like to support the work that we do, you can sign up to be a member on our website, sgpnoodles.com. You'll get access to all of the recipes on the site and participate in monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.